There's a fair bit of ant activity around at the moment. Maybe you've noticed it over the last week or two. I found this picture on the internet, but it looks like our driveway. Uh, there's a bit, you know, a bit of humidity in the air, and the ants take it all very seriously, working away, preparing for what's to come. There's no ruler standing over them, trying to motivate them. They just work. There's no one coming to check up on them. They just work. There's no dead wood among them, complaining or grumbling. They just work. 3,000 years ago, King Solomon wrote uh, in his Proverbs and Sayings, he said, Go to the ant, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. You want wisdom? Go to the ant. Maybe you didn't notice it, but our passage in Philippians is all about the sweaty stuff, hard work. Verse 12, work out your salvation. Verse 13, work for God's pleasure. Verse 14, when you work, do all things without grumbling like the ants. Verse 16, Paul talks about his own work among the Philippians with the words run and labour, training, exertion, heat, sweat, work. But in case you're thinking, Rod, I'm already tired, (laughs) I've got enough on my plate as it is, I don't need to come to church to hear about how I need to be trying harder, I feel guilty already for all the balls I've dropped this week alone. Let me reassure you, as Paul does throughout, uh, with two things highlighted in the text. Paul tells us firstly and emphatically uh, that this work is married to joy. This isn't the slave labour of the salt mines. Verse 13, uh, he talks about the Lord's good pleasure. Uh, And in verse 17, when he talks about how he has quite possibly worked himself to death, he says, I am glad and I rejoice. And then in verse 18, he says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice. It's married to the work that he commands. Work is married to joy, at least work in God's kingdom, doing his work. But more importantly... Uh, The other thing to refresh you before we even get going, uh, more important than your work is God's work. That's the other thing that Paul highlights in here. Verse 13, God works in you. God works in you. His is the work that makes your work powerful and purposeful uh, and even possible in the first place. Everything about work in this passage is organised around this one truth. God works in you. It is him who works. Before we step back to the rest of the passage, let's just think about these four words. It starts by saying, God works. Let's look at the first two. God works. Friends, God is busy. Now, I don't mean God is unavailable. More often than not, that's what we mean when we say, oh, I'm busy. I'm saying, oh, I'm, I'm too busy. I'm unavailable right now. Uh, I can't. I'm busy. No, I mean, uh, when I say God is busy, I mean God is active. He is at work. He is busy. He's not on holiday. He's not indifferent or uncaring. He's far from lazy. He is involved. He is winning. 
He is teaching and guiding. Uh, he is propping up and holding together. God works. Remember that, friends. God works. Now, we start by saying God works, but Paul, go, Paul goes on to say God works in you. To say that God works, is a, it's a sort of a comfort to be reminded of God, to, to remove ourselves from our own worries and just fix our eyes on God who works, who is sovereign and in control. But to say God works in you, I mean, that's something else. That's the gospel. That's partnership. We are business partners with God. Which is really saying something because somewhere else Paul reminds us that we started out not as partners, but as enemies of God. Far away, where we took ourselves to do our own thing, but God in Christ has come close, He's shown Himself to us, He has entwined Himself with us, He has rescued us, and maybe even more beautiful than the gift of forgiveness, He involves us. He's given us not just rescue, but life and purpose. As I said, everything else that Paul has to say in this passage spirals out from this central truth, God works in you. And so we're going to trace through the implications, and I have nine points to make today. Um, Three for the first verse, and then one each for every verse after that. So we're going to be here till approximately midday. But we're not. Um, But point number one, since God is at work in you, obey him whether or not anyone else is watching. Verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, uh, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, obey. Go on working. Continue to do what you're doing, whether or not I'm there. Now, to be fair on the Philippians, Paul is actually fully expecting this kind of obedience. Uh, He's not holding it over them or against them. He said something similar back in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's confident of their ongoing work with or without supervision. Uh, He was a witness to their transformation. He's received ongoing financial support and encouragement from them. But the point is still there, and this is where it overflows to us. Obey the Lord whether or not there is someone there to supervise or check up on. Because for Paul, he's saying, it's not really me you're obeying, it is God. It is God who works. So when you work, work for Him, whether or not you're being watched. There's no secrets from God. It is God who works and who you work for. Let me ask you a question. Does your private life reflect a life in which God is at work? Is God present uh, in your office? Is God present in the internet tabs open on your desktop or your phone? How you drive your car when no one else is in it, does that reflect God's work in your life? What about the content you stream on your devices? Is church just your Sunday medicine? where you make time for God, but only neatly, and so as to compartmentalise him in one easy-to-swallow pill, and then just leave him to rattle around in his container until next week. Do you ever read or reflect on the Bible in your own time, when nobody's watching? 
Do you ever pray in private? Or do these things only ever happen at church? Now, please hear me rightly. Never, never hear me say that private readings and prayers are more important than the public ones. The Christian faith is not primarily a private contract. It is a very public, shared uh, experience. What we do at church on Sundays uh, is in part providing a space for scripture and prayer, acknowledging that in your week, uh, you may not have made time for these things. And in a sense, on occasion, that is okay. You're here today and we get to fill our cup. Think of church services uh, as our community service to you in a busy week. You can come here to be filled, I hope. Uh, And having carved out the very middle section of your weekend on Sunday morning, that's no small sacrifice. To be here says something powerful to God, uh, to your kids and to your neighbours about where your priorities in life truly lie. But still, the question is, what are you doing when nobody's watching? If 10.45am on Sunday morning is where it stops every week until 9.30am the next Sunday, if you only ever treat Sunday church as a way to outsource the practice and the nurturing of your faith, well, that's uh, uh, so that that your faith is a thing that you never take actual responsibility for in the day-to-day operating of of your other life out there, well, that's not a life in which God is working. That's a life in which God is managed uh, and God is compartmentalised but mostly left out. If God is at work, and this is God we're speaking about who sees all things and is present everywhere, then make sure you work for the Lord whether or not you're being watched or supervised. The second thing is to say work out. Sorry if you're frightened, I'm not talking about the gym. Work out. This is what Paul says. He's playing with words. He says, uh, since, in verse 13, it is God who works in you, God works in, you therefore should do some working out. Verse 12, uh, he says, uh, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We'll talk about fear and trembling in the next point. Uh, But he's not saying... Work hard to earn your salvation. He says, work out your own salvation. But he's not saying, work hard to earn it. Uh, As if your salvation is uh, the weekend and your job is to suffer nine to five, just to get across the line. Or your salvation is the paycheck that you only get by earning it, by putting in the hours. No, your salvation is a gift from God. Your salvation is his work, not yours. It's the sacrifice of his son. The accomplishing, the earning of salvation is what God has done. It is not for you to do. But what Paul is saying is that this internal work of God should be bearing external fruit, stuff that shows on the outside. Perhaps the frightening thing about this is that in the passage we looked at last week, Paul gives a picture of God's God's work that brought our salvation the work that God has done to work our salvation in you, looks like this, the life of Jesus Christ, a life of servanthood and selfless suffering. And so the outworking of our faith must reflect the life of Jesus. 
the outworking of our faith uh, is to be others-centred to the point of pain and death, to forsake entitlements, to eliminate smug comparison, to even have your own rights violently trampled on. That's what happened to Jesus. That's the work that he did for you. The working out of our faith, is it going to order it to look radically different from what Jesus has done? I don't think so. It's to live as we work out his work, to live in quiet obedience to our God and Saviour who leads in love with that precise example of humility and sacrifice. Fear and trembling. Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Here's an important question. Uh, Why do we obey God? Forget about the passage for a moment, but why do we obey God? Why have you ra- how have you rationalised that before? Is it just that it makes sense to obey God? Is it just, why do we do it? Here's a few possibilities. Is it because of what we might get? Do we obey God because of what we might get, the good that we might get? To which I say, obedience has its rewards. But that's not the whole or even the main reason why we obey God. And plus, we've already established that our salvation is not our own doing, but it's the work of God. So we don't obey to earn or to get. Is it because of what God might do, the terrible things he might do? Is that why we obey God? For fear of punishment. And that is a bit what this sounds like, isn't it? Fear and trembling. We obey out of fear of punishment. And to be sure, Scripture does warn us that a life of rebellion against God or even indifference towards God, to compartmentalise God. Well, these things have their consequences in punishment. But again, that's not the whole or even the main reason that we obey God. Do we obey God because of what he has done? We're getting closer. Do we work in gratitude? Do we work because we're reminded of God's love and Christ's sacrifice? Do we reflect on his grace and so try to, you know, pay back some of what he has done? Well, again, there's some truth in this, but again, that's not the whole truth. It's not even the main reason that we obey the Lord. In fact, even this positive motivation to sort of pay back, to to live for God in recognition for what he has done, even that has its pitfalls. If we start to think of obedience to God as if we're paying some sort of crushing, impossible debt. You know, we owe God because he gave his own son. Oh, we've got to pay that back. Well, how could we ever do that? This is where this passage actually provides the clearest link to our organising truth that God works in us. Why do we obey God? Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Fear and trembling because of God. Not because of what he might do, not mainly for that reason, but because of who he is. It's God. Why do we obey God? At first principles, why do we obey God? Because he is God. It is really simple stuff. He is perfection. He is purity. 
and holiness. He is Lord. So simply obey. Trust Him. Revere Him. Let the very thought of questioning Him or excusing yourself or justifying your own behaviour, let the very thought of these things cause you to tremble in fear that you would even consider standing up to God and behaving for a second like you might know better than Him. Is fear and trembling, we obey God because He is God, because He is holy, because He is. God works in you. Don't forget it. Don't forget who it is we're dealing with. Therefore, work out your own salvation, doing good works in obedience, in fear and trembling. Point number four, his will, his work, his pleasure. Let me read verse 13. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. His will, his work, his pleasure. It's a couple of songs we sing here at church. Last week we sang the song, May the mind, may the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day. May our mind be transformed to be like the mind of Jesus. May our lives be transformed and given over to reflect his life. That was really the guts of, uh, of the, passage, the first portion of Philippians chapter 2. Have the same mind as Christ Jesus. Today we sung the song, the second song we sung was, This life I live is not my own, for my Redeemer paid the price. We live now for Him. Not because we can ever really pay back, but we don't belong to ourselves anymore. Uh, the rain over the last week or two has reminded me of the boat races we used to do down the gutter as kids. Um, maybe you still do it. Maybe your kids do it now. Uh, you know, you drop a leaf in the, in the current and watch it go down uh, and hope it doesn't get uh, stranded. But this, God's work, His will, His pleasure, this is an invitation. It's an invitation to step off into the current of God's purposes. We pray your will be done because we long, because of the work God has done in us, we long to have our own will renewed and aligned with His purposes and His priorities. This is an invitation to step off into the current of God's purposes. It's also a comfort because God's work in you is a labour of His love. Remember our main organising principle, God works in you. His work in you is a labour of his love. Like a parent of small children, he delights in your milestones, uh, he boasts of your progress and he gently shepherds his church. This is his work and we can count on him. He's busy, remember. He doesn't let up. Because God works in you, work without grumbling. This is why we uh, read from Exodus earlier. Let me read verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. In verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Do all things without grumbling. Grumbling really is, uh, in this context that Paul is referring to, it's forgetfulness. It's forgetting our organising principle that it is God who works and so it is God we work for. 
And I mean, the shame of Exodus, the reading we had from Exodus chapter 15, is that we have God's people in the wilderness grumbling that they don't have water to drink. And the thing that has happened only just before that is that they've, set, they've stepped out from the Red Sea where God delivered them miraculously from slavery in the hands of Pharaoh. God has wrought miracle after miracle over months in front of their eyes and he's brought them through on dry ground where the sea used to be and crushed their enemies behind them and then they hit a dry spell and they just whinge and complain as if they forget what God is capable of. Grumbling is forgetfulness. In this verse 15 of Philippians chapter 2, Paul is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 32, when Moses is speaking again uh, to the people, these people who have just been grumbling in the wilderness. We read an episode of grumbling in chapter 15 of Exodus. There's another one in chapter 16. And there's another one in chapter 17. It's forgetfulness. Uh, they, f- they forget so fast. Uh, and then Moses, when he writes, uh, when he's speaking some of his last words to the people, uh, he says uh, that um, uh, he goes on to say, uh, they are, what does he say? Uh, they are, have been unmindful of the rock that bore you. This grumbling is because you are unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. Remember our organising principle, God works in you. You forget that and you grumble. You think it's about you and you forget it's about him. The next point up here is to shine in Philippians. This is what he says in verse 15 and 16 now. No, sorry, verse 15. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Moses, when he's talking to the Israelites in his final words in Deuteronomy chapter 32, he says of the Israelites, of God's chosen rescued people, because of their continued sin and forgetfulness, he says they are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Moses says of God's own people that they have become crooked and twisted through their forgetfulness and their bitterness against God, their forgetfulness of his grace. And Paul uses these same words to say, we live in a crooked and twisted generation. You must not be like that. Remember, God works in you. Glory and rejoice in his salvation for you. Don't forget him. And he says we must shine. Not just be different and unblemished from a crooked generation, but he says in verse 15, to shine, what does he say? To shine as lights in the world. It's a picture from the heavens. As we stare stare up at the sky and see the stars and the planets in the sky. We don't shine with a light of our own. We shine like the moon and the planets, reflecting a greater light. So that as people... You know, just as you've seen people hop out of a car in the middle of the bush for a camping trip and they just look up 
at the night sky to take it all in, to glory in the beauty of the night sky, away from the city lights. The picture that Paul is painting is that you and I and Christ's church should have that arresting power over the world. That the rest of the world would realise when they see the church that they are living in darkness and we are reflecting a light that isn't our own. That people will pause and wonder, maybe even ask questions about the hope that we have, what makes us so different. To shine, not conform, but stand out. He says, uh, shine as lights in the world, in verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. The word of life is the scriptures. Scripture is our instruction manual for the outworking of the work that God has done inwardly. Now, I know you don't like instruction manuals. I don't love them. No one likes them. They drain you of energy, don't you? Don't they? They suck the life out of you. But Scripture isn't like that. As, as, as instruction manuals go, this is, Paul says, the word of life. This word is life. This is living, obeying the Lord, ordering your life around His words, His truth, being conformed to this and separated from the world in our priorities and our pleasures and our purposes. It's sacrificial. God's work in us had a sacrificial nature, didn't it? When we see what Jesus did for us, he laid down his life. He bled on the cross, a sacrifice for sins. Paul's own words here uh, borrow pictures from temple worship. Back in Old Testament times, people would bring the best of their produce. They would pour out wine. They would sacrifice the best beast from their flock or herd. Here's what Paul says uh, when he talks about his work uh, among the Philippians, he says, even if I am, this is verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. He sees himself as stepping into this same current uh, of God's sacrificial act to work out in a way that God has worked in, in the same pattern of sacrifice and humility. He's borrowing these pictures of the temple. But because of Jesus, now the ways of the temple are finished. The temple is gone. The need for that kind of sacrifice has been abolished because Jesus is the ultimate unblemished sacrifice for all sin. The temple stuff was symbolic. It was was symbolic in at least two directions. It was symbolic, one, of the work that Christ would one day do. It was symbolic and prophetic all in one. As people, you know, bled out their lambs on the altar, it was a symbol of what Christ would do when he shed his blood uh, as a sacrifice for our sins. But the temple stuff was symbolic in another way. As people gave uh, the first fruits of their flock uh, and their rewards of their hard work, as they gave the best and the first of it to the Lord in sacrifice, this was symbolic of a whole life devoted to God. It was never meant to be a compartment that they cleaved off, gave that to the Lord and then did whatever the hang they wanted the whole rest of the time. Offering was symbolic of a whole life devoted first to God. 
And Paul very much sees his own life that way in these New Testament times. He works and he bleeds and he suffers in devotion to God and the cause of the gospel for the sake of the church. That's why he's in jail when he's writing this letter. Gee, you'd think being in jail would be pretty miserable, wouldn't you? In a Roman jail, I'm sure of it. But you know where this is going because we've read the start of Philippians as well. Paul is filled with joy. This is the last one, friends. Rejoice. This is a joyful partnership for Paul. He's bleeding uh, for the Philippians, but he does it with joy. Verses 17 and 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, not his, he's doing it for them, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. He's not holding it against them or over them. Look at what I've done for you. Look how much you therefore owe me. No, he does it with joy. Just like Christ did it with joy when he laid down his life for us. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Verse 18, likewise you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He doesn't ask them to feel guilty or sorry for him. But to partner with him in joy. Our organising principle here comes back from verse 13. God works in you. And it's worth remembering or or recognising that as much as that feels like a really personal thing, God works in you. And I mean, how can it be anything but personal? He works in you. That is personal. But it's written in the plural. So you're included, you, the individual, are included in that plural. But he's writing to a church, a whole community. God works among you. God works in the church. Paul and the Philippians are mutually happy with their lot. Paul in prison, the Philippians in prayer and the proclamation of the gospel, they are mutually happy and rejoice because they are caught up in the current, the will, the work, the pleasure of God. Isn't it nice to be a part of something? It's nice to be included. God's work in you isn't just to save you, but to involve you in his ongoing work. Let's be a Philippian church, the church that Paul's asking them to be. Let's be a church, uh, a group of people who do the work of God, whether or not we're being watched, who do it uh, not only for ourselves, but in reverence to the Lord. Let's do it for the sake of each other, because we're a church. Uh, And God knows I need encouragement, and you probably need it from me. Let's set an example for one another. Let's do it joyfully without grumbling, because the Lord is at work. Let's pray. God, you work in us. We pray that today... Uh, if we were to take just one thing away, we would, uh, our eyes would be taken away from ourself, ourselves, uh, that we won't uh, be caught in a mirror, but we will be taken by your glory, by your love, by your sacrificial work for us in Jesus. We pray that as we reflect on your work and are refreshed by your saving and generous work, and we pray that these things will flow out in fruit as your spirit in us carries on the work that you've begun.
May we work with your strength. May we work tirelessly with power because it is you who works in us. Amen.